0: Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy D. Kim is a Harvard-trained ethicist and co-founder of 180 Church NYC. He is a Yale Hastings Scholar at the Yale Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics and the Hastings Center, where he explores the inequities surrounding health, immigration, and social policies, along with professional burnout. He is also a regular contributor to Christianity Today. For more information, please visit his website at samdkim.com. Okay, let's breathe out together all the anxieties, All the ruminating thoughts, every demonic harassment, every mode and every hat we wear, and even performance modes, let's lay it at the feet of Jesus. And let's breathe in, as children of God, His presence, His closeness, His intimacy in this place, in our lives, and around us. October 8th from Jesus Calling. I love you with an everlasting love. The human mind cannot comprehend my constancy. Your emotions flicker and falter in the face of varying circumstances, and you tend to project your fickle feelings onto me. Thus, you do not benefit fully from my unfailing love. You need to look beyond the flux of circumstances and discover me gazing lovingly back at you. This awareness of my presence strengthens you as you receive and respond to my love. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let my love flow into you continually. Your need for me is as constant as the outflow of my love to you. Amen. We're going to ask Paul to come up and give us today's word.
1: and put the first slide up yeah go ahead and put the first slide up thank you all right so uh, this is a typical scene that we see every sunday or almost every sunday but uh so last sunday we were sitting at the park eating chatting up storm as we normally do Um, p sam had asked me to speak with someone about their personal finances Uh, so we sat down and talked shop Uh, And what I found funny is that the more often I have this conversation, the conversation gets longer (laughs) because I become more aware of more factors to consider, more nuances to uncover all that jazz. And so when you're trying to explain or teach someone something semi-new, you're kind of walking into an old minefield. It's impossible to know what's been buried in that brain and you never know what might set off a wave of polarized thinking. And because the person that you're talking to could potentially just completely shut down and internally discredit everything that you're saying. Why? Because as human creatures who don't really like change, we know what we know, we underestimate what we don't know, and we aren't very good at handling unknowns and contradictions that challenge the little we feel that we confidently know. So, teaching anyone anything is an uphill battle and clearly an act of God. Um, but when it comes to personal finances, I've come to adopt a pretty generic approach that I found helpful when starting from scratch. So, number one, and these are the four, four bullets up there, what are your values and guiding principles for life and money? What are some goals or milestones that align with number one that require money and planning? Number three, when you're faced with a money decision, how does your response align with one and contribute towards two? And then number four, what kind of information, tools, or skills are out there to help me update number one and two? So we start with personal values and goals that align with those values. Then we make decisions that refer back to our core set of values and goals. And hopefully when we take the time to learn about something new, we also carve out time to reassess the values and goals. So when you do encounter a new piece of information, the key is to reassess our starting values and goals. Next slide. But that's easier said than done. So the fact is, is that connecting and applying concepts is a level four knowledge activity. And you can't get there without going through levels one through three. Uh, For example, let's say that I started a new job and I finally made retirement savings a goal because I value time freedom. First, I have to talk to someone in HR about my retirement savings options and then commit the major features and caveats to my memory, right? I have to know what the plans are and what the features are. Um, Why? Because without holding this information in your head, you can't summarize and conceptualize information into something that you can work with. So after you've committed these options to memory, you can then classify, compare options against each other and create a rough idea of where options sit in relation to each other, right? So all of this is happening usually automatically, but um, we have to commit things to memory. We have to compare options. That's the only way we can figure these things out. It's only after you have a working definition of these options that you can start generating hypothetical scenarios and begin future planning. Otherwise, it's impossible. So this is a simplistic, very simplistic model of how we learn. Um, so, let's say you're, you've done the mental work of figuring out your retirement savings options at work, you've learned, you've hypothesized, you've planned and you arrived at a conclusion and then naturally you took action based on what you've learned. You switched on the 401k, you're contributing up to the match, um, all is well with the world until I arrive and tell you that the accumulation of money is only half the retirement pr- puzzle. So. <laughs> You need the factor in the distribution of money as well uh, to come up with a holistic plan. So I'll say something like that and then throw a wrench in your plans. Um, Then I point you to articles written by retirement PhDs and learning and relearning continues. So the point is that we learn, we take a step forward, we learn something different, and adjust our next step accordingly. That's the process that we find ourselves in. Next slide. But why go into all of this? Why is understanding the process of learning something new and reevaluating our pre-existing values and goals so important? Why, Why does this matter? Well, the truth is oftentimes we're exposed to, and we pick up random quotes and ideas about anything that for some reason get lodged in our brains. We don't have a complete mental map in our brains about that subject, but we can quickly develop a bias for or against something that's totally ungrounded. And for some topics, being biased is inconsequential. But when it comes to topics that can change the trajectory of your life, such as managing money, relationships, matters of faith, doctrine, the foundations of what we build our life upon, we can't afford to hold on to ungrounded ideas. We owe it to ourselves to consider carefully what we believe and why we believe in those things. So today I want to systematically cover a few central ideas from the Bible about how we should live And draw connections to form a mental map in no way will this be exhaustive uh, exhaustive this is this was two brutal semesters of seminary Um, so i hope that by exposing you to even a little bit of systematic theology you'll have a starting point for further personal investigation all right next slide so just to lay some context systematic theology Uh, or systematics is a discipline of christian theology that formulates an orderly rational and coherent account of the doctrines of christian faith it addresses issues such as what the bible teaches about certain topics or what is true about god and his universe now thinking just a caveat now thinking through arguments in a logical sound coherent way doesn't mean that you arrive at capital t truth Yes, we're coming up with a convincing argument, but we don't ever know everything that there is to know. So we approach these doctrines with curiosity and an earnestness to glean what we can, but we remember that every argument is only an approximation of truth and not truth itself. So systematic theology tends to address the theological questions in the order seen on the screen. So starting from, how do we know what to believe? the act of belief and how certain beliefs can hold authority while others cannot to what do we mean by God? What does it mean that God is in charge? The problem of human nature, human sin, Jesus, the church, all of that stuff. So each theological question represents centuries of thought. It's a vast history, a history of acceptance, a history of rejection and reinterpretation uh, by church communities all throughout history. And so today I wanted to run through an outline of the seventh question, how should we live? Or what is the Christian life? Because personally, I think that for the modern believer, a lot of questions that may be hung up, uh, that we may be hung up on in our day-to-day lived experience gets addressed here. So next slide. All right. So the question, how should we live as Christians logically begins with our understanding of salvation through grace and works. Uh, so a little bit of a deep dive in history, um, Augustine, a North African rhetoric teacher tells us in his confessions, so confessions before usher, that before <laughs> becoming Christian, he could not give up his active sexual life. So he wrote a book called Confessions, and in that book, he said, I can't give up my active sexual life. All right um this guy later becomes a bishop he becomes a pretty big deal but he actively resisted faith because of this until one day god saved him by grace when he was not working for it okay so he wrote wrote his account that's what he stated pelagius and this is years later decades later a british monk read augustine's account with horror believing that god gives grace to those who have been working hard on their own so Already we have two camps. One is Augustine didn't work for faith, didn't work for salvation, none of that, but yet he was radically transformed just because it happened to him. Pelagius wrote that God gives grace to those who have been working hard on their own. So already you have a dichotomy of beliefs. So decades later, Luther, Calvin, and other reformers sided with Augustine saying that we're justified by grace through faith, Romans three four, and works could play no role in our justification. Meaning, we can do absolutely nothing for the purposes of justification. And then, decades later, Arminius argued that while this tr- while this is true, that no one can earn grace. Justification does partly depend on ourselves, since when we are offered grace, we can either accept it or turn it down. So he presents, he turns the argument on his head and saying it's not just a God thing, but it's also a human choice thing. Um, and in response, the Synod of Dort, which is uh, a meeting that happened within uh, Lutheran and Calvinist um, followers, uh, they created the principles of reformed theology or TULIP, creating the doctrine of election or predestination in Calvin's uh, famous double predestination. So normal predestination is the claim that people are predestined to heaven. Double predestination is the claim that people are predestined to both hell and heaven, um, to which Wesley said, "Every child of God has the opportunity to, opportunity to accept or reject grace; otherwise, God would be a monster, and preachers who call them all call all to salvation when they knew some were predestined to damnation would all be hypocrites." So obviously, Wesley is in the opposite camp. And then at the Council of Trent, the Catholics agreed that salvation cannot be achieved without grace, but they rejected the claim that justification comes from grace alone. An, aw- an awakening grace begins the process of justification, but we must consent to and cooperate with that grace. Justification is not only a remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inward man through the voluntary reception of grace and gifts whereby an unjust man becomes just and from and from begin an enemy from being an enemy becomes a friend, so someone who is not getting better cannot really be justified. So, basically, what's happening is is it, it starts from grace and works, and then it makes its way down to what is what's happening during justification. The Council of Trent introduces the concept of justification and sanctification. So the sanctification was never talked about until this point as being relevant. And what's happening is that at the Council of Trent. Justification and sanctification are put together and they, when we're saying that they go hand in hand, justification and sanctification are happening simultaneously, whereas Luther and Calvin separate justification and uh, and sanctification and says that when God saves you, God simply declares that you are justified um, and basically you're you're free from your sin, Uh, that is imputed righteousness. Whereas Catholics and Wesley's argue for a gradual transformation coming from God's love planted in our hearts, which is infused righteousness. So all that's to say that all of this is coming because there is ambiguity in the interpretation of the Bible. And we can't necessarily know if it's one or the other. The, the best that we can do is we can, we can make the best argument that we can for either side based on experience, based on tradition, based on, um, what we know about the other aspects of the Bible. So now if we've been tracking with me, it's not hard to see how our beliefs around grace and works in the process of justification and sanctification inform the Christian life. So based on which camp you're in, you arrive at different conclusions about your own faith journey. So uh, whether or not you are actively pursuing Jesus or whether God's grace felt like a choice um, to be made, Um, So where we land on the issue of grace and works, justification and sanctification filters our way, filters the way that we see and interpret our own personal narratives. So what's ultimately important and core to the message today is not that we pick a side on this debate. That's not the point. Rather, it's that we're able to glean whatever is valuable from both sides. If we feel that we are we were utterly depraved and only by the grace of God, we were saved. Great. All glory to God. If we feel that God offered us grace and I made the decision to follow him, also great. God is immensely loving. Um, And I think that's the point. We can find value in being able to see from all angles. All right, next slide. Now, these doctrines don't just inform our personal narratives. They also inform how we view and use the uh, sacraments that organize the Christian life. So baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, to name a few. Uh, Eucharist meaning communion. Uh, We enter into Christian community through baptism. We take on new responsibilities at confirmation. We are sustained by Eucharist, um, communion. And again, each doctrine explained before interprets the purpose of each sacrament differently. For example, in the early church, adhering to salvation by grace alone, they believed that baptism freed one from their previous sins and because you are justified, a good Christian can no longer sin after after their baptism. That's what they believed as a natural consequence. So as a result, many Christians were baptized on their deathbeds so they wouldn't sin after their baptism. Um, This made logical sense at the point of receiving salvation. God declares you justified, and you don't wanna sin to get in the way of that. So when do you get baptized? At the very end. But what I found fascinating and where I wanted to go with this point about sacraments is that sacraments which organize the Christian experience are communal in nature. So they're signposts that connect a divine reality with our experience within a community. And it's how we exist in community that's at the core of the question, how should we live? So I'm going to read this quote that's on the screen uh, by Platcher. Platcher writes, Christianity cannot be understood or lived out apart from a community. It's a way of life that embodies a common mind shared among trusted friends. Christians make their way in the world by growing into this common mind in ways refined over many centuries. They need spiritual friends, both those who have gone before and those who are now present, who accompany them and whom they, are, uh, they in turn accompany as they wend their way through the worlds that do not necessarily share or even understand their common mind. Some particularly inspired and articulate Christians have written down their experience and their advice regarding this common mind for Christian living, especially patterns for the, uh, establishing patterns for the less imaginative among us. The first such documents, um, still as important as any, is the long first letter Paul wrote to the Church of Corinth in about AD 54-55. This letter remains a classic statement of Christian self-understanding. All right, next slide. So, just to recap, under this point before moving on, um, we've talked about the process of learning and the four levels of knowledge. We talked about the importance of testing ideas and reevaluating pre existing values and goals based on new information that comes in. And then we transitioned to systematic theology, a discipline that formulates an orderly, rational, coherent account uh, of the doctrines of Christian faith. Um, where we went through a Then we went through a bit of Christian uh, history, the evolution of grace and works and its translation to justification and sanctification. And we discussed how these doctrines shape how we view our own experience uh, and our our communal use and understanding of the sacraments. So I wanna offer one last example of how theology shapes the identity and the actions of the community, much like how our beliefs about them uh, much like how our beliefs about the market, taxes, social security, shapes our financial decisions. Um, Okay, so next slide. So Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth that directly addresses how should I live? And if you look up outlines on 1 Corinthians, you'll find something that looks like this. It's a laundry list of real issues faced by the church, issues that at the time had no clear answer. Um, Because culture said one thing, the public sphere said another. And there was confusion and disagreement as to how the church should respond to these things. Um, So Paul in his letter presents two arguments that shape his response to each one of the problems uh, that are being presented at the church. First, Paul teaches that the identity of the community is shaped by the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, The Christian mindset begins at the cross of Christ, which is foolishness to the world that only seeks gain for itself, but displays the wisdom and strength of God what no Greek wisdom, Roman power, or even God's law can grasp is that weakness voluntarily assumed to rescue others is spiritual nobility and strength, and that military and political power reveal spiritual weakness. Second, uh, Paul expects the uh, the Corinthian Christians to have the mind of Christ uh, and to live according to it because God is dwelling in the hearts of his people. Um, Next slide. So uh, one of Paul's most striking teachings is that God has not only broken into history in Jesus, but has taken up residence in the bodies of the baptized. One is not saved by ideas, but by knowing that God no longer dwells in the temple at Jerusalem and demands animal sacrifices. Rather, in the person Jesus of Nazareth, God has made us his own. By baptism into Christ, God now dwells within us. And because God resides in your body, it does not belong to you. It belongs to God. Nothing is more foreign or threatening to our modern way of life than the idea that our bodies do not belong to us, but are an indwelt by and therefore belong to someone else, especially that if that someone else is God. Our age believes firmly that our bodies and our minds belong fully to ourselves and that we have ought to have complete control over them. Giving over one's mind or body to another is a sign of moral weakness and ignorance ignominy. (laughs) this notion that modern society uh prizes so highly is a sign of um as a sign of autonomy freedom and maturity is precisely the false wisdom the worldly understanding of power that the message of the cross turns on its head it's only the wise who have the strength to give their mind and body to god Uh, the foolish believe that they own themselves so The idea of community, uh, the the idea of the community of Jesus modeling itself after a crucified and resurrected Jesus, and together with God dwelling in the hearts of his people, those two ideas shape all of Paul's instructions on sex, on legal disputes, on marriage, on idolatry, on dietary restrictions, on spiritual gifts that are happening within the community. sacrificing what little we may gain for ourselves by having those freedoms so that we can protect the community as well as individuals from harm. Um, Christian freedom is voluntarily restrained by the spiritual vulnerabilities. Christian freedom is voluntarily restrained by the spiritual vulnerabilities of the church's weakest members. The community is strengthened when the strong cater to the needs of the weak. And because the community's identity and calling are expressed through the lives of its members, both publicly and privately, Paul thought it was important for the members of the community to help each other glorify and not embarrass God in their bodies. One cannot claim to be Christ and disgrace the Lord in the gathered body. So basically in the sermon, what I wanted, or lecture, uh, what I wanted to do was just give you an idea of what it's like to think uh, systematically from one question to another going from you know how do we live what are the implications from our core set of principles one being grace and works how does that make its way down to things that we do at the church like the sacraments Um, but also the way that we deal with all the issues the issues of you know uh, sex legal issues dietary restrictions marriage idolatry those were the issues that mattered to the jewish Uh, the Jews as well as the Gentiles during uh, at the Church of Corinth. But I think using the same method of, you know, finding what our values are, identifying our goals, and then being able to then uh, figure out what our natural response should be towards the things that matter to us in our age um, is, I think, uh, basically what we're trying to get to. Uh, um, And ultimately, that's that's what I hope that uh, this sermon will start. Uh, I guess, inspiring folks to do, um, developing a curiosity to learn and have their own uh, assumptions tested. All right. So I'm going to invite P-Lid back up here to close this out.
0: So, D. Sam is in Turkey right now. He's speaking at a global uh, mission conference. And he's been sending me pictures of um, fruit baskets that they leave in the hotel and keeps telling me they have fakes because I love fakes. And every time I look, there's no fakes. He's funny like that. And um, he's convinced that kiwi is a fake, plum is a fake. So far, no fakes. But um, keep him in prayer. He'll be back on Friday. I love uh, when Paul preaches because he makes us think through a lot of things. And it's not just the pleasant things or the things that are really inspiring, right? But things that are nitty gritty and things that are actually important. So, you know, I grew up more Calvinist because I'm from Presbyterian background. And Doc, he grew up more um, Methodist, or more from the Arminian, right? Like Paul. And um, when I was growing up, I would have these talks with my dad, who was a pastor, and it was all about the greatness of God, how great God was. And he was, I think, in secret, like in between. I don't actually think he was very extreme, but we would think, we would talk about how great God was. And the focus was always on how great he was and how he is faithful and how he is working and then I got married, and then we um, planted the church, and I realized that my faith and my focus was more in the middle. And I love what Dallas Willard, he says, a Christian philo- philosopher, Help! I don't butcher this, but he says that God is not opposed to effort, but he is opposed to works, because that has everything to do with attitude. And I think, The mind of Christ, it's so important because it's about having the attitude of Christ to examine our ways and the ways that we live in this world and to follow him. So actually turning to God and how much we rely on God and let go of the ways of the world, it matters. And I love that we'll be learning through systematically what all that means in today. And I just want to, I was just listening to the message, and um, before we go into the benediction, I just feel like God is saying that many of you came to Christ in this church. You met Christ, and you came from a um, no-faith background or maybe a non-religious background, and you came to Christ, and you came to know Him. And I think a lot of times, um, we can go right into serving God, and... um, kind of miss all the ways in which we live our faith and I believe that God is saying this year as the year comes to an end each day would you examine if as we're learning if that way that you're living is my way or the world's way because he's not opposed to effort but he is opposed to that attitude that says i will live my way i will earn it my way and that part actually we have agency in that we can choose so i pray that the holy spirit as you turn to abba that he will speak to us he will examine us in our ways and the ways that we choose to live every single day and decide Let's sing this song. Be flat. And I pray that this song would guide us through the week and throughout our lives to follow Him. And as followers of Christ, that we would once again surrender not to the things that we already know or the things that we already choose to the things we learn of him.
2: I want you to know. I want you to know. I will follow you for all It's all about you, Jesus, and all this is for you,
0: for your glory, for your glory
2: and your faith, it's not about me, as if you should do my way, you alone are God, and I
0: surrender, as a sign of surrender, let's lift our heart, hands to him, to your ways, it's all about you, it's all about you.
2: it's for you